So he so says, this has been uh, going on for a while. Okay. Yeah. Well, he says, just to put a point in this, I'll read from the end. I am not approving the use of stimulants. I have long ceased to do so. I am only protesting that, you know, by stimulants, he means like any drug. I am only protesting that there is no more harm in smoking opium than in smoking tobacco in the form of the mildest cigarettes, and that its narcotic effect can be but infinitesimal, if indeed anything measurable. And I feel bound to publicly express these convictions, which can easily be put to the test of experiment at a moment when all the stupendous machinery available in this country of crotchet mongers and ignorant, if well-meaning, agitators is being set in movement against the Indian opium revenue on the express ground of its falsely imputed immorality. I have the honor to be, sir, your most obedient servant, George Birdward, MD, late professor of Materia Medica and the curator of the Government Central Economic Museum, Bombay. Cool. Uh, like but don't he, pay attention like, to that. Sneak, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's not important. I like that he, like, he I'm a journalist brings it back too. to the rev- um, He brings yeah. it back to the revenue at the end. Yeah, of it, exactly. You know, that well, stop paying attention to this. Eh, stop yeah. complaining about this revenue with your religious, you know, uh, yeah, objections. Nine million sterling. Mm-hmm. Nine million sterling. That's not nothing. Yeah. So big so, pharma, really, or you know, big uh, East India Company, is really actually helping. Uh, just to encourage these, uh, you know, indigenous practices of opium smoking, which has, you know, always been done and it's actually good. Uh, well, you know, maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's not ideal for us, but like for them, like they need, because otherwise they'll I think be if you went to chi- like I think, us. Um, I, yeah, I which, think if you went to China today and asked, you know, any Chinese person on the street what they thought about opium and, uh, <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, they definitely would. I'm um, sure they'd agree. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. They, in fact, like still, I think like, you know, like heroin dealers get like executed immediately in China because like that's how hostile they are to, you know, I guess the religious uh, Marxist, Leninists took over and uh yeah I guess the problem is bigger than you know Confucianism or whatever yeah it's, uh, mm. it's just these elites and their ivory Mao and his ivory tower exactly wow being, being narcophobic uh you know really <laughs> yeah shame. really and Mao is really Mao is actually the real orientalist because he he imported western narcophobia into China and yeah like, exactly the oppression of For, before that indigenous culture yeah being exactly. on opium 24 7 yeah um it's outrageous. Um, although I guess there was some precedent before that, but I mean, it, it does go to show that yeah, yeah, communism is just an academic uh, a phenomenon of elites, uh, Confucian elites, elite narcophobes who are out of touch. Yeah, elite narcophobes. Yes. Name me one communist country that was not uh, highly narcophobic. Mm. Wow. I guess we have to oppose all of them and <laughs> people, right? Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> they must be destroyed. That's one. yeah. That's their that's uh-huh. their ultimate crime. Is that they were? It's a closed society. It's the ultimate closed society where you can't open your mind, man. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That that's a that's a nice uh, jumping off point. I think. Yes. Um, and I think to get into the. Oh yeah. No, right. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say that I think that this feeds like very directly into like the like Lily K. Ross's anecdote, like what actually happened to her mm-hmm. like in Ecuador. Uh which yes. you know now Lily K. Ross, like yeah, for those uh who need a reminder, she's the the co producer of that podcast cover story uh by New York magazine and the group Symposia, 
who I think we, we've really like mainlined a lot of their work in the last week or two. Um, and now she is a member of Symposia. Yeah, because they're like, that's basically and their entire beat is like this. Like they're just dedicated to the topic of like this episode kind of, which is like psychedelics, like the like sort of mainstreaming of it is like uh-huh. sus in a word and i, I have to um, say like really i to, like, i like down. shout out to symposia i'd love to get like one or a few of them on the on the pod at one point um because i think our views are like largely in alignment about this stuff and they're kind of the only group of people out there with like any immediate profile that are pushing back against these uh hyper utopian narratives you know uh, yeah. around psychedelics that are you know and they they are kind of fighting it is a kind of david and goliath battle at this point and you know i think i think there's even a, a spiritual resonance between sj and symposia in that um they certainly have been called all kinds of things for bringing up you know <laughs> measured substantive critiques of big time influencers um and called you know losers called uh, haters they've been told uh somebody spread a rumor that they were going to physically attack rick doblin at <laughs> conference um, um you know that they're they're not serious they've been like just casually accused of like blackmailing people for no reason they've yeah. been banned from psychedelic conferences just they, a bunch and of shit also like, up about them. Just, it's really crazy and it really does parallel like honestly like they've had it like worse in a way like i think like uh because i don't know i think maybe some of the people who have like openly like you know, didn't like sort of like said like false things about them, like, or maybe have a higher profile than we received. But I did, it did feel kind of similar, like some of the bullshit that people say like that, you know, about us. Uh, I mean, we have been attacked by literally Hamilton Morris's friends. (laughs) Well, yeah, his friends, but not by him. Um, Uh, Not by him himself, but we'll see after this comes out. Uh, We'll see. Uh, I don't think Hamilton's going to like it too much. And uh, he does not like criticism. And I think we both went back and, and watched between, uh, you know, parts one and two, we went back and watched like basically almost like the commentary track that Symposia did of Hamilton's 2022 uh, presentation at Microdose. Yeah, it was Where he uh, yeah. really spent most of it like bitterly complaining and the talking enti- shit yeah. about p- people that were criticizing him. But also another parallel to us, uh, never like invoked the name of his critics that he was attacking. Yes. You know, and just was like, well, some people... This mm-hmm. and that, you know, some haters, blah, blah, blah. And it actually, going back and watching it again, like, it was way pissier and more, and also more full of, like, lies and manipulative kind of rhetorical uh, techniques than I even remembered after watching it, yeah. you know, back last November. But they really, if you want to watch a kind of masterclass in, like, taking down some, like, hyped up corporate bullshit... Just watch that uh, video. Maybe we'll link to it in the show notes um, and watch them for like literally go line by line. Like they stop every 10 seconds and be like, all right. And then just like lay into him. It's and, almost like, necessary to shit, do so because he's like just Yeah, because he's spitting so like, much bullshit. Yeah. He's so manipulative. I actually, I always thought he was sus and my estimation of him, like the more I kind of dig into it. Um, We've just been increasingly vindicated. Like, you know, yeah. When we first, like, criticized him, like, I really didn't, I honestly didn't know much about Hamilton Morris, like, at all. And I was like, oh, yeah, just reading about this guy, he seems kind of sus. And people were like, how dare you slander Hamilton? But I just feel like, I'm like, wow, like, our instincts really were vindicated. Because now I'm like, yeah, this guy's incredibly sus. Like, his, this, the, like, dismissiveness, like, the 
talking out of both sides of his mouth about like how he literally straight up just works for Peter Thiel. Yeah, yes, I want to make like, that very we're so close clear. To the like, line. if it wasn't clear enough before, like we want to emphasize he works for Peter Thiel. Um, that's his boss. Well, he he worked for he left Vice in 2021 and took a job, a full time like chemist consultant job at Compass Pathways, which at least as of 2020, because I read all their SEC Edgar documents, was 7% owned by Peter Thiel and associated entities through his Rivendell Ventures and the Founders Fund. So that is like one of the companies, um, Atai Life Sciences, run by a very weird uh, German guy, Christian Angermeyer, mm -hmm. is uh, the other one that I, I'm pretty sure Peter Thiel has also put money into. But Compass is kind of the main one. They've been very proactive and aggressive. And so Hamilton like works full time. So this whole speech he's giving at the end of 2022, he is a company like a, a full-time employee of a Peter Thiel company that is patenting new you know psychedelics and doing trials and they're at the heart of this entire kind of corporate Wall Street venture capital backed you know uh, movement and he is just like scoffing and laughing and rolling his eyes and doing like lol I'm backed by Peter Thiel every five seconds to basically uh, dismiss and poo-poo like any kind of criticism, specifically from the people who have been banned from that very conference and like aren't there to like push back, you know, at all. Like I think at one point he brings up an article that talked about how um, like that was kind of raising concerns about perhaps like corporations putting um, product placement in like psychedelic clinics in the future. Yeah. So that like while you're tripping on like MDMA, you like see like a Coca-Cola symbol and he just like, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's something we can worry about. You know, I, I could think of maybe uh, like three to 400 things that are more important for me to focus my time on. But yeah, maybe we can get to that one day and just kind of laughing it off as if like, yeah, dude, but wait, like at least the theory, I think he said actually, I like, you know, I thought I read too much Philip K. Dick, but wow, that's crazy. And everyone's like, <laughs> dude, like if you've read all that Philip K. Dick, why are you so dismissive of it? Like all of his stories are about like terrifying, like technological dystopias and like mind bending drugs and like sinister shit like that. It's so, awesome like, and he'll be in charge. So it's fine he'll be in charge. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. We could spend three hours just like also going line by line um, <laughs> in Hamilton Morris's talk that time and just like tearing him the fuck apart. He's full of shit. <laughs> he is like, he's a Pharisee. He's up to something. He is acting in bad faith. I'm just going to say that right off the bat. Like, fuck this dude. Like he is up. To, he is like, nobody should look up to this person or trust no. this person. That's like no. what I'm putting down there. Because as he said himself near the end of the talk, and he said in other interviews as well, they asked him like, well, why did you leave your job, you know, doing, uh, you know, documentaries for Vice? And he's like, oh, well, like in the early 2010s, like there was more money in psychedelic journalism than there was in psychedelic chemistry. So I went where the money was. And now there's more money in psychedelic chemistry than there is in documentaries. Yeah. And one of the people so, mentioned yeah, like but watching some old like documentary he'd made with Errol Morris, his father, and like Errol Morris like interviewed him and he said something yeah. like, my one true goal in life, I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing, so I don't really know exactly what he said, but and this is like second hands too, but something like my one true goal in life is to have like a pool full of like, you know, an incredible amount of money and just dive into it and Gold swim coins. around like Scrooge McDuck. Like Scrooge yeah. McDuck. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. I thought he said that to Rogan, but he actually said that to his own father in like a promotional documentary that he got hired to make for some kind of like sus, like Canadian venture capital fund. By the way, just a funny. Did you find little, like, that like clip or of him saying that or anything? Like, I, or I, I feel yeah. like I saw it in maybe in a symposia video. Like they played it in some other video. Like they they ripped it from the internet, but now it's gone kind of thing. You know, Hamilton also, because he is like, I think, you know, like I know it's it makes you a loser to point it out but like he is absolutely a nepo baby in like the strictest oh, sense yeah. of the term like he went into making documentary films his father is like one of the most famous documentary filmmakers like in the United States and in the world also like funny thing about that cuz like Errol Morris has kind of popped up before we're kind of like mm, what's his deal kind of has an, a weird like early life story of like how he talked his way into a PhD program and like Wisconsin I want to say anyways like there is you like know, it's interesting because isn't you Madison like one of the big like psychedelic like grad programs now it may be I'm actually not sure um yeah it would and be interesting it, but it was a hub that. of like MK Ultra adjacent research back in the day oh um, huh you know yeah you you Madison um and I went there for two years so like I, I had no idea of that at the time oh, yeah he but, went to the University of Wisconsin Madison I'm looking up University of Wisconsin Madison yeah. psychedelics because I'm pretty sure they have like one of the first programs or one of the most prominent in like psychedelic therapy. It wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, the other funny thing about Errol Morris that yeah, maybe some people have forgotten Center already. for Research and Psychoactive Substances, an innovative research center for okay. the science, history, and cultural impact. Yeah, this is at uh, U Madison. So it seems okay, like it's a hub yeah, for that, that type sense. of thing too. Yeah, I forget so what kind of like sketchy, I forget if it was like the Human Ecology Fund or one of those CIA cutouts was run out of, um, UW Madison back in like the 50s and 60s. Um, I mean, it's a big research, like big public research university. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense. Um, but no, the funny thing I just want to bring up, it's, I feel like a little bit pertinent to maybe the whole, the whole Morris uh, clan, you know, is that in the 2010s, you know, uh, Errol Morris would get hired to do these very flashy kind of high, high concept sort of documentary things like for companies, including a lot of Silicon Valley companies. And for those of you that have watched the, I think it was, God, actually, <laughs> talk about small world. Um, anybody that watched the Alex Gibney documentary about Theranos might remember there's a lot of footage in that that is from when Errol Morris got hired to come in and do like a flashy promo series about Elizabeth Holmes and about Theranos. And I just think that's a little bit interesting. Now, I think in retrospect, Errol Morris, I don't know exactly what he said about that, but maybe along the lines of like, I got duped like everybody else or, you know, it was just a job, blah, blah, blah. But he does kind of hold himself up as like, you know, very, you know, uh, see through the bullshit, calls out the bullshit, yeah cut, yeah, cut out the bullshit, man. Kind of, you know, documentarian. He also made a very high concept Netflix docuseries called Wormwood, which is about the, the death of Frank Olson and MK Ultra and had Seymour Hersh in it and was like kind of good. Um, but also maybe it, it, I remember I watched it when it came out a few years ago, but it also felt maybe a little bit limited hangouty, like it wasn't willing to kind of go all the way on MK Ultra 
kind of stuff. I mean, because everybody talks about Hamilton talks about MK Ultra. It's it, 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 everybody in the psychedelic space like knows it, but yeah. the way it gets minimized is very interesting. The way it gets kind of like put in a box and like, yeah, well, they did this, but you know, it actually doesn't work well in like interrogating people, ignoring that there's probably like 50 other things that it is useful for. That, you know, that, that then we can look at history, like, subsequently and see that, oh, yeah, like, weaponized, like, dropping a bunch of weaponized drugs on a population or, like, shaping culture or social engineering or, like, disrupting the anti-war movement in the 60s. There's all kinds of things. Charles Manson, he seemed to find some effects with LSD, didn't he? Right? I mean, yeah. e even he according to the public narrative. effects with them, yeah certainly uh, had some impacts on influencing people, didn't he? And not to mention every cult that, like, you know, used LSD and had these divities. But so I just think it's very interesting that Errol Morris gets sucked in to this this Silicon Valley VC-fueled revolutionary medical tech company that if you compare the promises that Elizabeth Holmes is making about <laughs> her little Theranos machine and compare the way the psychedelics people talk about the medical possibilities that are about to be unlocked with psilocybin and MDMA, I think you start to see two very similar pictures emerging. There, yeah. There's very similar dynamics going on here. And so it's f kind of funny that, you know, Errol Morris gets hooked into building a hype machine for this bullshit company that who, who even knows what the fuck they're really up to. And then his son dutifully follows in his dad's footsteps, starts out by making, you know, these psychedelic documentaries for Vice, and then moves into working for that engine and actually in a way kind of like goes native in the Silicon Valley sense and actually jumps ship and, and starts participating in well, making I assume psychedelics for a Peter Thiel-backed company. I assume he must have had some training before that. I mean, it's not like trivial to no, make he studied it in college. Yeah, yeah, right. So Yeah, yeah no, no. He, he's yeah. always been a camp. That was, that was the hook of his vice show. And that's partly yeah, that what he made knows him an authority. Right. He knows all about it. And, and you know, he gives he plays this character that can be very convincing and kind of interesting at first glance of this guy that just rattles off, like, you know, isomers and polymers. And he like, plays like you know, he plays Sasha Shulgin, and, basically. Um, he does. He yeah. plays this young hipster ass, like looking fucking Sasha Shulgin with his fucking glasses and his floppy. Little <laughs> all hair right. And, like, all right. Yeah, just, like your I hatred for him is vibe. like really like seething, and it's gonna get us. I, know, I mean, I know, I'm yeah. not, like I'm also fine him to be like contemptible. However, like we're gonna no, get I, like fucking tackles. I, I, I don't and, mean like, that. I don't mean that to just take fans. shots at. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't even mean to take shots at his like personal appearance. But you have to admit he has a very he has a very like good look for a, an yes, ambassador yes. of psychedelics to the millennial generation and the Zoomers and everybody else. Like he walks this line of being a little bit of like a crazy vice dirtbag, but also like he is a chemist. So he can talk about like things in a very like scientific way. And he kind of has this like very disciplined like non-judgment about all drugs he's just interested in them yeah exactly stuff. but i think he has that, long know, since to approve the use well he does approve the use of stimulants but he is only protesting that you know from a very scientific point of view you know which ones are harmful it's and there's no harm in some of these and these things are misconceptions you know and he knows all about the uh the materia medica 
um, etc. You know, well, yeah, yeah, he's and got I, that I think true. Also, no, and we, you can trust him. You're like he's and and I think what the thing is like Hamilton Morris kind of became the pioneer of an approach to marketing psychedelics that I think has kind of taken over the entire kind of space now. Like uh, like because Hamilton Morris, it's like he's not dismissive of the more woo woo like new age kind of old school psychedelic like it's going to make the world a better place and expand consciousness. Like he's not hostile to that, but he doesn't emphasize it that much. He leads with more of his like down to earth science kind of stuff. And also kind of appeals to like the sort of drug libertarians that just like taking drugs and would like them to be decriminalized. And also says, and also appeals to the medical potential, which is really where all the money is at of like, well, yeah, no, I think these things could be helpful to people for a variety of things. And they show really great promise, but he kind of stops short of, he's not as a like, you know, frothy as like maybe a Rick Doblin or some of the older generation that still have a little more of that like boomer hippie, kind of counterculture thing to them like he has walked like a, a kind of sophisticated line of making psychedelics more respectable and more serious but also making them cool and like look fun and like you should do them yeah you know but like but in a from an objective like just an experiential objective kind of way like like i, I guess this is a long way of saying that i think to a lot of people he does not strike them as like a fanatical kind of zealot or a true believer in a sense. They see him as more like down to earth, rational, like sensible. He, he studies the science and all these things. But I think in this specific case, that kind of affect, that, that branding and uh, that way of talking about it could be a Trojan horse for something else. Yes. And in the case of Hamilton, I mean, we can speculate on, we can't really know what is in Hamilton's heart or in his mind or, you know, his soul or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think at the very we least... Go, we can go on vibes. There Certain are, people have vibes. We can go on and vibes. And you can kind of know, like, I mean, I know we don't want to get into yeah. a vibes-based discussion. However, <laughs> like, uh, kind of there's today, sometimes you get a little bit, like, you. sometimes you can detect that kind of, I don't know, there's certain people where you can tell, but... Anyway, you know, it does, I will say what you've been saying kind of reminds me of, uh, there's another Birdwood article called What is a Quack, which was also like written to the Times where he sort of said something similar, you know, the similar thing where it's, you see this sort of um, acceptance of like the sort of woo-woo in a certain way. He said, uh, the practice of medicine in short is not a science, but an art ever in danger of being degraded and debased to a quackery against which dishonor it cannot be too severely protected and more so in the public interest than even that of quote unquote, the profession, but of honest nostrums. I have myself always been tolerant when my patients in India used to ask me if they might take this and that quack salve. My answer invariably was yes, while it cures and with the Hindu sepoys themselves, they desired it. I always called in their priests to administer the ritual nostrums, and sometimes they worked miracles. So much depends on faith and will. The proper protection against the quackery of secret remedies and patent foods is the continuous chemical analysis of them, published every week in the government gazette, but without any expository commentary. I have the honor to be, sir, your most obedient servant. So, same sort of like thing where it's like, yeah, the, a capitalistic Scrooge McDuck type mindset will accept any narrative, will use any narrative to advance its goals, whether it's and yeah. they, like what, what I think is val actually valuable about uh, the transparency of Hamilton's persona is that 
you like you can see how it shifts like and how he even acknowledges in a way like when certain tactical like when he tries to advise against tactical errors for instance when he criticizes the overemphasis on medicalization because that mm-hmm. is a strategy that's not really what he cares about that's just a way to pitch it by saying like the poor veterans or something like that yeah or and the same thing with like the ritual or like the sort of mystical thing like is that what matters no but that is a strategy that will work on some people. The same way you see Birdwood saying like, ah, but it's actually temperance. Yeah. It's all about they have their goal. No, exactly. And then anything can be deployed in service of that. But it's like insincerely. I, I think you could look at Hamilton Morris's entire career as like an extended exercise in like tactical media to make psychedelic drugs as legalized and as commercialized and like as proliferated as possible by any means necessary. And everything else is like a means to an end. Like that, that's what it feels like is that he is conducting PR, you know, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, to get the, to, to like change public opinion and change perceptions to influence people to legalize uh, psychedelics and kind of in the most maximalized way possible. Because, you know, we've talked about there are are groups of people that maybe they want to decriminalize, but they're suspicious of all this compass Wall Street kind of stuff. Then there's, you know, people that are super all about commercializing it and stuff. And there's people that, you know, focus more on the the sort of spiritual, like personal, you know, so there's like a multiplicity of kind of like somewhat competing, somewhat collaborating views. And among all of those, like Hamilton is like kind of picking and choosing different tactics and he, he's definitely aware of different demographics that sort of like need to be persuaded. That's why I think he's so dismissive, just like Maps is, that, and we'll get into this, of them courting the right wing and him just kind of rolling his eyes and being like, are you serious? Like, ooh. I think he literally says in that speech, like, oh, ooh, ooh, right wing yeah. people are taking psychedelics. Ooh, oh, I'm so scared. Ooh, like, oh, they take the same drugs as left wing people. Oh, my. Yeah, oh, as no. if that and were the like, critique, as if that's what people yeah. were concerned about. No, it's about them, like, owning the companies that are rolling this out and, like, what. And is- I think also he knows that he has to get the support, as Maps has been doing. He has to court the support exactly. of, like, certain sectors of the right yeah. wing to get this shit legalized so he's gonna pan- uh, yeah. he, went, he went on jordan peterson's daughter's podcast uh, in the last <laughs> yeah. like six months apparently and and actually i think he also maybe i think the symposium people were saying he went on joe rogan and like started just like people just don't like public how, like, figures yeah which uh, like, in yeah. reference to jordan peterson like right. he's being unfairly hated on and like isn't it lame and like, so he's he's got very, I, I don't think he has very serious, like, politics in a sense, or, like, convictions. I like, think that he he'll, it's like, if you want progressive shit, fine, here's like some progressive shit. I almost like that he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. But he really is just all about, like, but anyway, okay. Uh, but, we're, but yeah, we're, but so I think, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's important to kind of say straight up that uh, that he does strike me as a true believer in a sense, but, like, but not... I don't know, not like I haven't seen anything with him where he seems to be like actually really into like any kind of like specific like esoteric kind of tradition in a kind right, of like direct no. conscious way. I think he's definitely. Or like yeah, that he's, he, yeah, I don't think he's in a cult or like practices like he, no. magic. I no, he's wrong, definitely but. like a hardcore like scientific rationalist. Absolutely. But he, I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that he believes like that type of thing can be explained like within that paradigm and that this is like, you know, the way to like, again, like it's a genuine, like there is no distinction between like taking a drug 
and have like a genuine spiritual experience or like having an actual relationship with God like that is like it's truly seeing God if you like trip or whatever but I think you know maybe for specific reasons but Here we go. In the past, I was working primarily as a documentarian and journalist, doing chemistry in the background. Now I'm working as a chemist, doing journalism in the background. And I'm constantly frustrated by the way that these things are being presented in the media because I think that we're at a very precarious and vulnerable time. And I want to ensure that the progress and the momentum that we're currently seeing is maintained into the future. I think probably most people here are familiar with the famous Terence McKenna rallying cry, find the others, something that he was paraphrasing from, from Timothy Leary in the 1960s. And the idea is find affinity groups, find people that share your passion and come together to promote understanding, to promote research, to learn about ourselves, to learn about each other. And that is what the psychedelic community is supposed to be. I first met Jason Wallach, the chemist that I've worked with for all these years, at a conference just like this. And I think that the conferences that Rick arranged were instrumental for building that community, bringing people together, which helped not only Matt and, and Rick's personal endeavors, but it helped everyone. So I've been a little bit troubled in recent years because it feels like the McKenna rallying cry has been modified to something maybe a little closer to uh, find the others and accuse them of commodifying the sacred to assert your moral superiority. Can we pause it? Something pause like it. that. I don't know. <laughs> and so, first of all, that goes back to, you know, like, subtweeting a Dave with the qualifying <laughs> sacred. Nobody um, will name me. <laughs> <laughs> Very careful to avoid invoking the demon. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so, the, I mean, the interesting thing about this framing is that I was, I was there in those early days with him and Jason Wallach. I was actually, so I had beat them, we met a little bit earlier than a year, maybe a year or two before I met Jason, but it was at Horizons Conference in 2010. It's important to emphasize that, like, back in the beginning, all of us were, you know, we describe ourselves sometimes as reformed cheerleaders. Like, we were very gung-ho about psychedelics and the psychedelic kind of field. And, you know, I still really believe in the power of psychedelics, and obviously I think they're fascinating. I wouldn't, wouldn't stuck around if I didn't. But I started to see enough things that concerned me and people not caring about things like rape and other, you know, horrible behaviors that I started realizing, and as we've talked a lot about on our podcast before, that we're not actually all on the same team and actually there are people who are working to counter ends, like the, the ends that some of us, the goals that some of us are working towards are explicitly in con contradiction to those that other people are working towards. Um, and so like, we're more interested in keeping psychedelics for the people and not for powerful corporations or the further uh, stratification of society with growing inequality and, and contributing to the rise of fascism and psychedelics as a tool for fascist, fascist indoctrination. Um, but there are other people who view things differently. So it's important to kind of put an asterisk next to what you're saying. And there is a reason why there became these rifts within the psychedelic community, even among the people who were there in the beginning. 
what I really see are just enormous numbers of these sort of moralistic hand-wringing articles. Uh, again, LSD capitalism promises a, a bad trip for us all. Okay, great. Uh, the psychedelic renaissance is on the verge of an uneasy enlightenment. Mm. He, he just, like, I just read that piece today. It's a Jacobin piece. Um, it's actually quite fantastic. And, you know, it talks about, like, the like dysfunctional mental health care system, uh, social and economic causes of mental illness, and he just sweeps it away. No engagement with it, just this fucking shit-eating grin on his face. Oh, <laughs> The celebrity is a celebrity. Let's, let's hear what the celebrity has to say. Uh, patenting and cultural appropriation raise questions about who should profit from psychedelics and on and on. The gentrification of consciousness, the rise of the psychedelic industrial complex. And we are, you know, so I'm seeing a lot of this, like a lot of it. It seems to be the, the major way that this sort of stuff is being covered. But then, of course, the, the ever present threat of right wing people using psychedelics. Uh oh. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Right-wing people use the same drugs left-wing people? I had no idea. <laughs> and the basis for this insane article is a peer-reviewed scholarly article that is so absurd, I cannot even believe that people are not criticizing this. They, they actually make a claim in this sort of like neo-Milgram experiment it, that was conducted in Singapore. I'm not making this up. Like, this is real. That they did an experiment where they gave people worms and asked them to feel grateful and then hold the worms over a, a mock coffee grinder. And apparently, the grateful people in this study were more likely to put the worms into the mock coffee grinder. Therefore, Gratitude makes people more vulnerable to authoritarian thinking. This is already a very tenuous claim, I think. <laughs> but they took it a step further to say that psychedelics cause gratitude. And as we know from the worm coffee grinder experiment, gratitude makes us vulnerable to authoritarian thinking. Therefore, psychedelics make us vulnerable to authoritarian thinking. And we all know that uh, Jordan Peterson used a psychedelic, blah, 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 blah. So Peter Thiel, something, 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 something. So we, we've all got to be really careful. <laughs> Peter Thiel, yeah, the funder of there. the person who he works for, or the company he works for. Yeah. yeah. Also, so, just to point out what Emma Stam said, right? Like that this this talk was supposed to be about like the future of chemistry, and instead turns into like Grampy Hamilton rants about things he doesn't like. <laughs> well, he yeah. also just completely eliminates the the context that the paper was written in too, like before oh. even getting into the, the experiment stuff. Yeah. Wait. I've, so actually, maybe because um, I want to get into the worms, but maybe Brian, you can talk about the, the reason that you, like wrote the piece in the first place. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's an absolute, um, you know, categorical distortion that uh, Hamilton is making. He is taking the. Uh, well, actually, one of the conclusions of our piece is uh, for granted. Oh, oh, right-wing people take psychedelic drugs? Is the same drugs that left-wing people do? Oh, no. Well, uh, the reality is, is in about, like, 2017, 2018, the Trump era, there were um, news articles breathlessly talking about how psilocybin might uh, stop fascism. And um, I... 
I regret to inform you all that um, the drip, the steady drip of articles and sentiments and think pieces, you know, um, wondering aloud whether or not psychedelics can save the world uh, continues um, to this day. Um, so, you know, the reality is, is that we were not breathlessly reporting that psychedelics were being used by people we disagree with politically. That was not the point of right-wing psychedelia. The point of right-wing psychedelia was an intervention in a utopian uh, discourse that was playing out um, with the aid of psychedelic researchers, with the aid of the media, and with the full cooperation of psychedelic advocates and others who stood to profit from psychedelic medicine being approved as quickly as possible um, to make sure that we all had a, a you know, very hopeful idea of how all this would go. Um, had Hamilton, um, while he was you know, raking Shayla Love's excellent work over the coals, uh, referred to even the title of the, part, uh, the article she wrote where she interviewed and the Shana, it's the false promise of psychedelic utopia. A much better um, you know, version of what, what it is that we were trying to say is psychedelics are not going to push anybody in any particular, particular ideological um, uh, direction. That it's, it's ahistorical to claim such things. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad.